Hi everyone, welcome back to another edition of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. And before we get started on today's episode, I just wanted to mention that if you like the show, if you'd like to support the show, I'm now on buymeacoffee.com, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Gunnar Hauser, just one word with a capital G and a capital H. The link is posted in the show description as well. Our focus today is going to be on one of the world's most famous and according to my feelings, greatest cities, and that's Rome. But we will zero in on some of the worst disasters to ever befall that city, the so-called sacks of Rome. The term itself in English isn't used much these days, but it seems to derive from the French, probably in the 16th century, the term metrasac, or to put to sack, as in to loot or plunder a city. It might come from the idea of filling some kind of a sack or bag with loot. Now, for some reason, the sacks of Rome, of which there were many throughout history, have taken on their own significance because Rome has had such a powerful symbolism in Western civilization. It is, of course, the capital of the modern nation of Italy and the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church, Vatican City, is an enclave within the city limits of Rome. And there are some bizarre stories connected to these so-called sacks, so this makes the topic very fitting for our show. And for our first tale, we're going all the way back to the 4th century BC, a very shadowy time in the city's history. This is the sack of Rome by a tribe of Gauls. Migrations of various tribes of Gauls had a major effect on the history of Europe for several centuries. This particular Gallic tribe was known as the Senones, originally from the region near the town of Saône in northern France today. For unknown reasons, they began to migrate somewhere around 400 BC, crossed the Alps, and settled in a region of northeastern Italy near the Adriatic Sea. There's a town called Senegalia still today in that same vicinity. They were led by a chieftain named Brennus, who decided to begin raiding the region of Etruria, the area inhabited by Etruscans north of Rome. When the Gauls began a siege of the town of Clusium, the people of that city appealed to the Romans for assistance. And the Romans agreed to help them. But Brennus took this as a violation of neutrality on their part. So he led the Gallic army in a march against Rome and handily defeated a Roman force sent to stop him at the Battle of the Alia River. With this defeat, the Roman army broke and fled, and this left the city open to invasion. When the Roman populace heard that the Gauls were on their way, a large number of them fled the city. Rome had no fortification walls at this time. The Vestal Virgins, a group of, you guessed it, virginal priestesses whose job it was to care for the sacred fire of the goddess Vesta, also fled Rome, taking the sacred fire with them, Olympic flame style. Roman belief was that if the fire were to ever be completely extinguished, that would be the end of the line for the Roman people. Those who decided to stay, most of them occupied the Capitoline Hill near the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, the most important god of the city. However, a number of the older leading members of patrician families, those families of a special, highly prestigious class in the city's population, decided to stay in their homes, thinking it cowardly to abandon their ancestral dwellings. According to the historian Livy, they sat alone in the atria of their homes and awaited their fates, attired in their best ceremonial garb and inviting the Gauls to do as they will. So the Gauls entered a city that was largely deserted, And they were quite puzzled to find the more opulent homes with their doors flung wide open and old men sitting there impassively. And the fashion at this time for aristocratic men in Rome was to grow long beards. 
That custom later changed, and Roman men were clean-shaven for a very long time. But at this point in history, they had beards. Livy claims that the Gauls became very quiet and superstitious and unsure of what to do, and then one of them reached out and pulled the beard of Marcus Papirius, who promptly struck him in the head with his staff, and a general massacre of the patricians ensued. It's a great story. You can probably see some obvious problems with that. Did they interview Gauls after the fact? How would the Gauls know who Marcus Papirius was? The whole thing seems like a way of glorifying certain families and their lineages. So, after some looting, pillaging, and burning, the Gauls realized that Romans were holding the Capitoline Hill, and they laid siege to it. A man by the name of Pontius managed to descend the hill without being caught by the Gauls, swam across the Tiber River, and made his way to the nearby town of Veii, where some of the survivors of the Battle of the Alia had gathered under a man named Camillus. Pontius returned with a message from Camillus, again swimming the Tiber, and managing to ascend the hill, but this time the Gauls took note of the pathway he had taken. And they scaled the hill in the middle of the night in an attempt at a sneak attack. However, there were geese, sacred to the goddess Juno, living on the hill. Romans were very connected to certain religious ideas about birds. They did divination from the flight of birds and had sacred chickens that would be fed to get omens before a battle. The hill's human sentries failed to detect the Gauls, but the geese began to cackle madly. And this was the alarm system of the Capitoline in this case. A warrior named Marcus Manlius rushed to the edge of the summit, threw several Gauls to their deaths, and then commanded that one of the Roman guards who had failed in his duty be thrown over the site to join them. Marcus Manlius later got the additional name Capitolinus for his heroic defense of the Capitoline Hill. Imagine his surprise when just a few years later he enjoyed the same view when he was thrown from the hill for treason. After the story goes, trying to do debt relief for the Roman poor, he was accused by the other aristocrats of aiming at tyranny over the city and was condemned to death. Soon afterward, disease broke out in the Gallic ranks, quite possibly malaria, which was a problem in Rome in ancient medieval and even up to modern times because of the low-lying terrain near the Tiber River. Brennus and the Romans began to negotiate and an agreement was made that if the Romans paid 1,000 libra, or pounds of gold, the Gauls would withdraw. While the gold was being weighed out, a Roman observer noted that the Gauls were tipping the scales so that they would end up with more gold than had been agreed upon. But when the Romans protested, Brennus is said to have drawn his sword, thrown it onto the scales, and thundered, Vai victis! Woe to the vanquished! And taking into consideration the fact that between the Battle of the Alia and the patricians caught in their homes, enough Romans had been decapitated that the Gauls could open a head shop when they got home, the Romans acquiesced. While the Gauls did withdraw from the city, some sources allege that Camillus and a Roman army attacked the Gauls on their way back north, inflicted heavy casualties on them, and recovered the ransom. Although historians think that that might have been a story designed to save face on the part of the Romans. Romans seem to have never forgotten this event. This is one of the formative things in their history. The mere mention of Gauls getting anywhere close to Italy for centuries after this would cause what was called a Gallic tumult where the entire city was mobilized. The immediate response to the sack, according to the historian Livy, was the construction of what came to be known as the Servian Wall, named after one of the kings of Rome, Servius Tullius, from even before the creation of the Roman Republic. 
That is a misnomer, however. The stone wall is dated in its surviving courses to the early 4th century. The longest surviving section can be seen near the main railway station today. And a little over a century later, in 283 BC, the Romans avenged the sack by destroying the Gallic settlement at Senegalia. Ironically, for many centuries after this, the greatest threats to the city and its population came from fellow Romans fighting in civil wars of the late Republic and early Empire. No foreign enemy was able to threaten Rome until the 3rd century AD, and this is when a number of tribes invaded Italy, including the Uthungi, and were eventually defeated by the Roman Emperor Aurelian. Now, Aurelian decided in the wake of this that Rome, which hadn't needed new fortifications in a long time, it had long outgrown the original circumference of the so-called Servian Wall. He ordered the construction of what comes to be known as the Aurelian Walls. Some of this survives today as well, including some of the gates, one of which contains a museum of the walls. But despite the strength of these fortifications, there's going to be more sacks of the city. We now come to the later Roman Empire. And the most famous sack of Rome is the one perpetrated by the group that will later be known as the Visigoths. At this stage, we would just call them Goths, although they were divided into various tribes, the one in question being the Tervingi. They first entered Roman territory when they crossed the Danube River in 375 AD. They did this because they were fleeing incursions of a Central Asian nomadic group called the Huns. This is many decades before Attila took control of the Huns. The Visigothic warriors brought their women, their children, everything they owned in this migration. At this period of Roman history, more than one man shared the title of emperor. The eastern emperor was Valens, and Valens agreed to let the Goths settle in Roman territory in exchange for them doing future military service. So they were given some land south of the Danube River for settlement. But it wasn't very productive land. Roman merchants took advantage of them by selling them terrible food like dog meat at exorbitant prices, and they suffered during the subsequent winter. So they decided to go to war with the Romans. The emperor Valens took an army to meet them at a place called Adrianople in 378, but the Romans were defeated there by the Visigoths. It was one of the worst defeats suffered by the Roman military in its history, and the emperor Valens was killed in that battle. And from this point forward, I'll just refer to them by their later name of Visigoths. The Visigoths now make their way through Greece, Dalmatia, and down into Italy. Now, Valens' successor in the east, Theodosius I, and also the western emperor Gratian, failed to defeat the Goths militarily, so eventually a treaty was arranged to allow them to settle in the region of Thrace, which is now Bulgaria. And things stayed quiet for a while until Theodosius I died in 395, leaving the eastern half of the empire to one son, Arcadius, the western half to another son, Honorius, and several power struggles involving various officials of the eastern and western halves of the empire started to intensify. Now, under the leadership of a chieftain named Alaric, who also happened to be officially a commander in the Roman military, because the Visigoths, by the terms of the treaty, were expected to do military service for Rome, they were known as Federati. 
Now the Visigoths became restless. They migrated out of Thrace through Greece, took several towns such as Athens, and then made their way into northern Italy. Alaric was demanding good land for settlement for his people and also supplies of food and money. At this stage, the Roman Empire had technically divided into an eastern and western half with separate administrations. The western half was under the leadership of the emperor Honorius, who was based in the north Italian port city of Ravenna. Honorius and his advisors refused to give Alaric what he wanted. Now, Alaric had no fleet, and Ravenna was pretty well protected on its landward side by marshy terrain, so Alaric decided not to try to attack Honorius in his home base. But he made straight for Rome, and several attempts were made by Alaric to negotiate a settlement. Now, the city was protected by the Aurelian walls. However, Alaric's army was blockading the city, preventing any food from being brought in. And eventually, in 410, the Goths got in through the Porta Salaria, a since-vanished gate in the Aurelian Walls, under cover of night. Some sources allege that elements in the city's population had become so desperate that they actually opened the gate. And this is the most famous sack of Rome. But it wasn't the most destructive. To be clear, it's kind of hard to do a kind and gentle sack, so there was destruction, there were people who were killed. Alaric and the Visigoths, for one thing, had actually converted to Christianity. And Alaric told his men, do not harm clergy, do not harm women and children. They were mainly looking to plunder valuable items from the city. Now, some of the treasures that they might have taken during this sack of Rome were objects from the Jewish temple that Vespasian's son Titus had brought back to Rome. After troops under his command sacked another city, Jerusalem, and destroyed that temple in the late first century AD, they had been kept in Rome in something called the Temple of Peace. That may sound a little ironic, but the Romans had just followed their time-honored tradition of knocking the shit out of a place and then saying they had created peace. This sack lasted for three days, and then Alaric and his men withdrew. Now, the psychological shock of what had happened did traverse the entire Roman world, because the city had not been sacked by a foreign army since the Gallic sack of some 800 years before. Not long afterwards, Alaric died. They were going to make an attempt to cross to Sicily and possibly to North Africa. But bad weather prevented that crossing. After Alaric's death, his tribe diverted the Basento River, dug a tomb in the riverbed, and then put the river back in its original course. So Alaric's tomb has not been located, but potentially it would make for a very interesting find because no one knows what was buried with Alaric, possibly even some of the temple treasures from Jerusalem. Now, the so-called Emperor of the West, Honorius, did absolutely nothing to prevent the sack of Rome or avenge it, even though one of the captives taken by Alaric was Honorius's own sister, Galla Placidia. And it seems like he was somebody whose elevator didn't exactly make it to the top floor, if you know what I mean. There's an amusing anecdote of what happened when Honorius got the actual news of the sack. Honorius had some pet chickens that he spent a lot of time with. One of them was named Roma, Rome. The story is that a messenger ran breathlessly into the palace in Ravenna, crying in a state of obvious emotional distress and anguish, and reported to the emperor Honorius that Rome had died. Of course, he was speaking figuratively. The city had been sacked for the first time in a long time. It's like the city had been killed. Honorius took that news, though, to mean that his favorite chicken had died. Overcome with grief, he exclaimed, but I just fed him from my own hand and it took some explanation to calm him down after this. 
Since Alaric had died soon after sacking Rome, there was a legend that arose that that would be a deadly thing for any commander to do. It almost took place again in 452 when Attila led an army of Huns into northern Italy and threatened a march on Rome. He changed his mind after meeting with a delegation from Rome that included Pope Leo I. And legend has it that it was the Pope who really convinced him not to do it. And some say that Attila got second thoughts when he remembered the story of Alaric. Other explanations have been put forward, though, that there was famine in Italy at the time and he worried about supplies for his army. Also the possibility that disease had broken out in his force. And then Attila died soon after anyway. After a long night of heavy drinking and sexual carousing with his young new bride, he appears to have died of a brain hemorrhage. Another sack of Rome occurred in 455, and this was done by the Vandals. If you've ever wondered why we have a term Vandal for a destructive person, this is the reason. The Vandals were another tribe from Central Europe that went on the move because of the arrival of the Huns in Europe. The Vandals migrated first into the Spanish Peninsula, where they remained for a while, and then crossed to North Africa. They made Carthage their base, and this part of North Africa, which today is the country of Tunisia, was one of the major sources of grain for the city of Rome at this time. The Vandal sack occurred because of a jilted marriage deal. Now, the Vandal king at the time was named Geyseric. Some sources have it as Genseric. His son, Huneric, was betrothed, engaged, to a girl named Eudokia. She was the daughter of the emperor Valentinian III. But Valentinian III was assassinated, probably with the participation or connivance in the plot of a senator named Petronius Maximus, who was a very ambitious guy. He is also said to have been hungry for revenge against Valentinian III because he had lost a lot of money gambling with the emperor, had handed over his signet ring as collateral for paying the debt, but Valentinian lusted after his wife, Lucina. So the emperor had somebody take the ring to her, saying, come meet me for dinner. She thought it was her husband who was inviting her to dinner. Then she was taken to the imperial palace and realized what had happened. And she's effectively trapped and is forced to submit to the emperor's advances. In the wake of the killing of Valentinian III, Petronius married Valentinian's widow, whose name was Eudoxia, Lucina having evidently passed away already by this point forced her into the marriage, more or less at sword point, and then had the daughter, Eudokia, marry his son, Palladius. He is then able to bribe the troops, gain the support of the rest of the Senate, and take over as Western Emperor. But as the poet Sidonius Apollinaris said, fortune turned on Petronius Maximus like the sting from a scorpion's tail. Not long afterwards, the Vandal fleet sailed into the harbor at Ostia, and the army surrounded the city. Pope Leo I was still in office, probably thinking, uh, this job is a little bit more than I signed up for. He negotiated with Geyseric, but this time was unable to convince the attacker to leave, and extracted a promise that they would not commit murder, arson, or rape if they got inside the city. So this time they opened the gates of the Aurelian Wall. So you're probably beginning to see a pattern here. This Aurelian Wall is not really doing what it's supposed to do. This sack lasted much longer, 14 days, but again, historians debate its severity. 
Now, the Vandals were also Christians, but they were Arian Christians. They followed an idea that had been declared heretical by church leadership, and they are said to have looted a number of churches. Some sources say that it was the Vandals who got the treasures from the Temple of Jerusalem, not the Visigoths, decades earlier. One of the ships laden with loot from the city of Rome sank in a storm on the way back. Who knows what might be aboard? The Emperor Petronius Maximus and his son Palladius were both assassinated while attempting to flee the city. The historian Prosper of Aquitaine says that they were dismembered and the body parts tossed into the Tiber River. The two women of the imperial dynasty were taken away as captives, and Eudokia did in fact marry Hanaric. Hopefully their marriage was a happy one because Hanaric's first wife had been sent back to her father with her nose and ears cut off. The Vandals claimed that she had been plotting something treasonous, but probably it was done just so that the original engagement with Eudokia could be made. The population of Rome dropped dramatically in the decades after the Vandal sack, but it was still an important urban center and played a role in the 6th century wars between the Byzantines and the Ostrogoths, another wing of the Gothic tribes that took over Italy. The Ostrogothic ruler Totila besieged Rome while it was being held by a Byzantine garrison in 546. Before the city fell, famine had increased to such a degree that the inhabitants were forced to feed on each other's dung, according to the historian Procopius. This raises a number of interesting questions, because if people are starving to begin with, they're not going to be producing a whole lot of dung. Probably people will be snacking on the equivalent of bunny bullets. And if you consume dung, well, does it change at all when it becomes dung again? Perhaps these are mysteries best left unsolved. Attacks on the city continued into the Middle Ages. There was actually a raid by a Muslim army, which occurred in 846. Here was one case where the Aurelian walls actually did protect most of the people. The Muslim attackers were unable to get through those. But that wasn't their main goal anyway, because they knew that the Christians kept most of their wealth in churches at this time. It's the same reason that the pagan Vikings targeted churches and monasteries in their raids on Western Europe. So the Muslims attacked the original St. Peter's, old St. Peter's, and also the Church of St. Paul outside the walls, as it was known. Neither of these churches were within the circuit of the Aurelian Walls. Because of this event, Pope Leo IV ordered the construction of an extension to the wall to now enclose the Vatican Hill. This became known as the Leonine Wall and defines the boundary of Vatican City today. Now, even though it's much later for our time frame than we normally cover in this show, something needs to be said about the sack of Rome in 1527. This is the Renaissance Reformation period. The background to this event was a conflict between Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the League of Cognac, where do I sign up to that, which was an alliance of various states, including the Papal States. The sack was carried out by an imperial army that had been successful in its Italian campaign, but had not been paid in some time. And we have an eyewitness account of the sack, written by one of the defenders of the city, Benvenuto Cellini. A true Renaissance man who was not only an artist and goldsmith, but apparently one hell of a good shot. His skills and marksmanship took down one of the enemy commanders, Charles III of Bourbon. My favorite story about Cellini is his claim that during his time in Rome, he said that he participated in a seance that was held in the old Roman Colosseum. It was presided over by a priest from Sicily who supposedly knew how to summon spirits. Cellini's motive in holding the seance was to get back in the good graces of a woman that he had seduced. Why else would you summon demons? 
They stood inside a magic protective circle that had been drawn on the ground by the priests, but so many demons appeared, thronged the Colosseum, according to Cellini, that they began to fear that the circle might not protect them after all. They dispelled these phantoms by burning asafoetida grass, the fumes of which seemed to smell quite a bit like the first part of its name. Thanks, everyone, for joining me again today. Keep an eye out for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.